Okay, I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 4. I'm only going to read the first 13 verses because this is very heavy stuff. If you ever read the book of Ephesians, uh, there's a lot in it. You could literally just take one or two verses of this wonderful book and you have a sermon. It's, there's, there's depth in the book of Ephesians. Thank God there's only six chapters in it because <laughs> there's so much in this book. So Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to talk about unity and maturity in the body of Christ. Or could I put it like this? Unity and maturity in the Monaghan Elam. Would that be bringing it closer to home? Okay, let me read you the first 13 verses. As a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble, be gentle, be patient, bearing one another in love. That's only verse 2. There's a sermon there before you go any further. (laughs) Verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as we've been called into one hope. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ gave it. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and give gifts to his people. What does he ascend mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all of the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now listen to these two verses. To equip the church for the work of service so that the body of Christ may be built in unity until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Wow. You need a cup of tea after reading that. You see, this is all very, very deep stuff here. And as I said, two verses of Ephesians, you could literally preach for hours. Let me give you a little background to what's going on here. Why did Paul write the book of Ephesians? Anytime I study a book in the Bible, the first thing is, why is that book there in the first place? This is what's happening. If you read Paul's letters to Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, and uh, the Philippians, and so forth, what happens is there's a problem in the church, and Paul has to write a letter to address the problem and to sort it all out. That's why Paul's writing all these letters. Paul is in a Roman prison. He's chained to a Roman soldier. And he decides, I'm going to write the book of Ephesians not to address a specific problem in the church, but to tell the church, this is what the church is all about. This is what it's all about. So when you read the book of Ephesians, Paul is 
getting us to understand in every church, including the Monahanelum, there's going to be issues. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be troubles. That's just church life. But Paul is saying in the book of Ephesians, I want you to rise up above, above these problems which are there and get a vision of what church, the body, is all about. And this is what it is. It's called a mystery. The body is this, that in the church of Ephesus, or in the body at that time, there are two groups of people coming together. One are called the Jews, which are coming to Christ. The other are the pagan Gentiles, and they're also coming to Christ. But they are both coming to Christ on the same level, which is this, Ephesians 2. It's called grace. By grace are you saved, true fit, not of yourself, as a gift from God, so you cannot boast. It's the work of God's grace. So this church here in Monaghan, and any church, is made up of very different people, different cultures, different backgrounds. Some of you may have grew up in Sunday school. Some of you may have been in terrible conditions. But we all come into this body by the same access point, which is by the grace of God. It is the same for everybody. And that is something that the Old Testament uh, prophets didn't understand. The Old Testament prophets prophesied the first coming of Jesus, which we call Christmas. The Old Testament prophets prophesied the second coming of Jesus. But between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming, you've got what's called the body of Christ, made up of very different people. I mean, look at that person beside you today. They are very different from you, aren't they? And you're very different from them, thank God. We are all different, and we all have different ideas about how to run church and what color the carpet should be and what color of a tie you should have, or maybe you shouldn't have a tie at all. Or there's also... But what Paul is saying is, I want you to look beyond that and say to yourself, this church is a body. And you enter into this body by God's grace, through the blood of the Lamb, repentance from, from your sin. And then when you're in the body, there are different people than you in the body, but we all work together in the church. And that's what's called unity and maturity. Now, how does Paul begin Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1? He says, as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Notice Paul does not say, I am a prisoner of Nero, the Caesar. Or I am a prisoner of the Jews who betrayed me and told me that I'm a sinner or whatever, and they've dragged me to Rome. I'm going to be, cru I'm going to be killed. Paul doesn't say that. When Paul is in a Roman prison, he's chained to a Roman soldier, but he says, these chains, I am a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's one thing that comes up over and over again in the book of Ephesians, which is this, and you've heard this before. Paul says, I am seated with Christ in heavenly places. So what has happened is this, Paul is chained to a Roman soldier in a smelly dungeon. But he doesn't look at these chains. He says, I'm seated with Christ 
in heavenly places. Today, you might say, I'm chained because I've got a sickness, I've got a disease, I've got a bereavement, I've got cancer, I've got a heart problem, I've got a problem with my marriage, I've got a problem with this, I've got a problem. You are not chained to that. You may be, but you are seated this morning with Christ in heavenly places. You are up here and you are looking down at your problem. Paul is in a stinking dungeon. If I was Paul and I was writing Ephesians chapter 4, I would have said this. I, PJ, a prisoner of this corrupt, evil country. The porridge is cold. There's rats everywhere. There's cockroaches. I'm cold and I'm freezing and I'm going to look for justice. That's what I would have wrote. And you'd have probably done the same. But when Paul is in prison, he looks at these chains. I'm in chains for the gospel. I'm in chains for Christ. Don't worry about these chains, church. Now that I'm in chains, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write a letter to tell you about the body of Christ. How God has a wonderful plan for this world. Doesn't matter whether you're a religious Jew or you're the prostitute or whoever you are, you can all come into this body through grace. That is amazing. If you're living in Europe, as we are, European preachers, I suppose I'm one, we call the book of Ephesians the Alps of the Bible. Don't know if there's anyone here that's ever been to the Alps. They're very high. And when you're on top of the Matterhorn in Switzerland or the Dolomites in Italy or whatever, when you're on top of the Alps, you are looking down at creation. If you're an American preacher, they say that the book of Ephesians is called the Grand Canyon of the Bible. You go to the Grand Canyon and you go, what? You go, wow. When you read the book of Ephesians, Paul is saying to you and me today, of course you have a problem with him. Of course there's a problem with that person. I don't agree with your doctrine. I don't agree with the way you dress. I don't agree with the way you look at me. There's all sorts of petty problems in church. But what Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus, rise away above it and look down and, go, and say, God, how can you bring these people into the church? And the answer is, your grace and your love has done that. And that's how Paul approaches the book of Ephesians. That's just my introduction. So let's read verse 1, right? I'll be here all day. Now, verse 1, again, it's very important. As a prisoner of the Lord, not a prisoner of Nero, not a prisoner of, a prisoner of the, the, the justice system of Rome, as a prisoner of the Lord, what does Paul say to you and me today? I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I urge you to, li to live a life worthy of the calling that is on your life. Now, what Paul is saying is basically this. What Paul is saying to them is this. Now that you are a Christian, and I think most people here this morning, you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, are you living your life to its full potential? Do you know Jesus came to give us life? What kind of life did he come to give us? Abundant life. Are you living today an abundant life for Jesus Christ? Because if you're not, 
the devil is robbing you. That's what he says. So Paul, now remember where is Paul when he's urging the church? He's in a prison cell in Rome, and he's chained to a Roman soldier, and he tells the church, I want you to live your Christian life to the max. In other words, I want you to be enthusiastic about being a Christian. Do you ever hear somebody say this? You're very enthusiastic when it comes to football. You're very enthusiastic when it comes to your sport. You're very enthusiastic about your car, maybe your job. What does the word enthusiastic mean? It comes from the Greek word entheo. The word theo means God, theology. So the original meaning of the word enthusiastic means to be excited about God. Do you know the early Christians were excited about God? If you read Acts chapter 2, they met every day for prayer, the breaking of bread, for worship. They were in each other's houses. And the pagans around them said to these people, they are very excited about God. And they invented that word, enthusiastic. That word has been robbed by the sport world. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with playing sport, please. But we need to take that word and bring it into the kingdom. Are you enthusiastic about God? What was the first thing that came into your mind when you got up this morning at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, or maybe a quarter to 11 or whatever? Did you say, oh, I have to go to church today, PG's preaching, oh no, he goes on for hours, he's very boring, oh, what will I do, I better go, oh, look, I better show me face, that's the wrong approach. Or did you get up this morning and say, wow, do you know what David said? I love these words. I was glad when they said to me, let us come to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. That's what David said when he went to the temple. And in those days, when they went to the temple, they were singing songs of praise before they walked into the temple. Most people are getting out of the car, it's your fault, your fault, you've done that, you've done that. And then when you meet somebody at the door, hi, praise the Lord. <laughs> nice to be in church. <laughs> I'll get you this, this rose not We'll talk about this when the sermon's over. That's the truth. That's the way we do it. Be honest. Listen, the word enthusiastic is a beautiful English word. I don't know how to spell it, but it is a lovely word. It's to be excited about God. And that word has been taken by the world to talk about sport, and that's fine, and others. We need to be excited. How are other people going to come into the church if we ourselves are not on fire, who are not enthusiastic, who are not excited. Amen? So Paul is chained to a Roman soldier. He's probably hungry and cold. And he's telling the church out there in Ephesus, live worthy of the calling that is upon your life. Live your life to the max. And then he goes on to say in verse 2, now how do you live your life to the max? Be completely humble 
gentle, patient, bearing one another in love. What does it mean to be humble? To be humble is to see yourself as God sees you. Pride says, this is how I see myself. I'm great. I'm wonderful. That's pride. Humble is when you go to God and say, God, what do you think of me? There was a famous preacher called David Parson, and he said this once, and I never forgot it. Every Christian should read the last verse of Psalm 139 every day. Let me read it to you. I'd say you probably know it. Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my thoughts today. See if there's any wicked way in me. Cleanse me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Do you know the ancient Greeks did not have a word for humble? That word didn't exist in the Hellenistic, in the Greek culture. So Paul says, I want you to be enthusiastic about your Christian life. And how do you do that? Does that mean you have to jump on the chandeliers and run up and down? Hey, I'm a Christian. No, the way to do that is to be humble before God. The second thing he says is to be gentle. Now, what does it mean to be gentle? The word gentle in, the, in King James is to be meek. To be meekness is power under control. It's to have power, but to have it under control. You've all heard of Michael Schumacher, yeah, the Formula One racing driver. One day he was driving his sports car in Spain. He came to a red light, he stopped, and these two young people came up with their sports car beside him. They put down the window and they said to him, when the lights turn green, we'll have a race. Michael Schumacher racing these two men. As soon as the lights turned green, these fellas put the accelerator down and they just, whoom, they were gone. Michael Schumacher just went nice and slow and they disappeared. Michael Schumacher had the car, he had the giftance, he had the talent to zoom by them people. But I'm not going to do it because they could crash. They don't have the experience. I do. But in meekness, I'm not going to do that. The greatest example of meekness in the Bible is when Jesus was on the cross. When Jesus was on the cross, he could have said to one angel, take me down off this cross, it's too painful. I can't go through with this. But he died for you and me. That's meekness. Jesus himself said, come on to me. All you who are weary and heavy, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am meek. So God wants us to have meekness. And then he says, I want you to have patience. Nobody has ever said this to me. See that person over there? They've got a very long fuse. They're long-tempered. I've never heard that. But I've heard people say to me, see that person over there? They're quick-tempered. They're short-fused. As soon as you speak, they blow up. You know those kind of people? Short-tempered. But God wants us to be long patience is making allowance for other people's faults that's what patience is and then he says bearing one another in love <clears throat> bearing one another in love now that word love in the greek is called agape let me tell you something about agape love 
again in the early church, the pagans that lived in Jerusalem, the unbelievers who lived in Jerusalem, they looked at the early Christians and there was one thing that they could not understand about them, and that is this. Why did they love the widows? People with leprosy, the divorced people, the down and outs. Why did they love those people? Because those people will never be able to give anything back in return. What is agape love? Agape love is God's unconditional love that keeps on giving and giving and giving and giving, but never looks for anything in return. That's called agape. If you're honest with me, we tend to love people, but we expect them to give us something back. I'll do something for you, but you have to do something for me. That's not agape, that's phileo. Agape love, you keep on loving and loving and loving that person, regardless of what they say about you or to you. There are no strings attached. Do you know that's how God loves you? Unconditional, agape love. The early church was able to love these people who had no means <clears throat> of loving back, but they continued to love them. And the people around the early church watched them and they could not understand, these are the people you should avoid. But the early church kept on loving them unconditionally. What, does the, what did Jesus say? By this shall all men know you are my disciples if you what? If you love one another. That's love that he's talking about. Now, in the book of Ephesians, Paul is explaining a mystery. The mystery is that there's a church. In the book of Ephesians, and in, throughout the New Testament, it's called the body. And this body is made up of all groups of people. That's what Paul is, is going to talk about. But before he talks about the body, which is in the next couple of verses, the first thing he talks about is, I want you to be excited that you're in the body because of God's grace. Number two, I want you to be humble. I want you to be gentle. I want you to be pa patient with each other. And I want you to walk in agape love. Why does Paul say that before he talks about the church? Why is Paul laying down these foundations? Because the next couple of verses which I'm going to look at, he's going to talk about the body. The answer is this. You've heard this before. Wherever two or three people are gathered together in my name, guess what? You will find friction, you'll find conflict, you'll find arguments, and you'll find disagreements. What is it about Christians? If you started a church with two Christians, one of them would follow with the other one. What is it that we, we seem to struggle and get on with each other? This is actually a true story, and I'm not going to tell you where it happened. But this church actually had a lovely party for somebody. And when the party was over, everybody was going home. The pastor was at the door when all of a sudden two women in the canteen had a big row. 
This man ran as fast as he could to the pastor at the door and told him, you better get in. There's a big row up in the canteen, two women. They're going mad at each other. You know what the pastor did? He ran out the door, got into his car and went home. And I said, wow, that's wisdom. I said, that's the kind of pastor I want. Run away from it. I don't know whether you ever heard the story about this man living on an island on his own for 40 years. A big cruise ship comes to the island, all the people get off, and they talk to this man who hasn't seen anyone for 40 years, and on the island, they notice that there's two churches. And someone said, one man, why have you got two churches? See that church over there? I don't go to that church anymore. I fell out with that church, and he built a new one. One man. What is it about Christians that that's the way we are? We, we, we just seem to... Paul knows this. Paul is going to explain in the next few verses about the body, which is what? The church. And Paul knows that in every church, including the Monaghan Elam, there's going to be tension. There's going to be different opinions, different ideas, misunderstanding, and the devil wants to take them and cause division, cause all sorts of backbiting, cause all sorts. So Paul is saying, okay, number one, if you are really passionate and enthusiastic about going to church, those side issues won't matter. If you really humble yourself and say, God, I'm not perfect either, and as your preacher, I have a long list of baggage as well. We all have. But if you walk in meekness and see that other person's point of view, and you do all that in agape love, you'd have the perfect church with the perfect people. That's what Paul is saying. So I'm going to explain what the church is all about. But if you want to leave now, if you can't, if you can't cope with what I've said so far, you can go now, right? For the one or two who want to stay behind, we'll continue the sermon, all right? Now, this is what he goes on to say about the church in verse 3. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Your job as a Christian is to make every effort to be in unity with your fellow Christian. And then he goes on to say this. There is one body, there is one spirit, there is one hope, there is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism, and there is one God and Father of us all. How many churches is there? One. At the end of the day, there is only one body. If you look at the Christian world today, you have Catholics and Protestants and Episcopalian, you have Greek Orthodox, you have Russian Orthodox, you have the uh, Presbyterian Church, you have the Free Presbyterian Church, you have the Scottish Church, you have the Free, Free Scottish Independent Church, you have the Methodist, you have the Free Methodist, you have Pentecostal, you have Baptist, you have Anabaptist, you have Quakers and Lollards and all sorts of... Well, the list goes on. There are so many divisions and denominations out there. But at the end of the day, there's only one body. And the way you get into that body is through the cross, through the blood of Jesus. Whatever denomination or label you call yourself, and that's fine, whatever you want to go, but there is only one body, and truly there is only one church. There are many churches, but there is only one body. There are many denominations, there are many labels. And I said this before, it doesn't matter what label you call yourself, when the rapture comes, that label will blow off. And if you go to hell, it'll burn off. That's the reality of it. But there is only 
one body. There's only one spirit. And Paul is pleading from a prison cell in Rome, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. Your job as a Christian is to be in unity with those fellow believers around you. There is only one hope that's going to heaven. There is only one Lord. Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. There is only one faith. And that faith is by grace, are you saved through faith and not of yourself? There is only one baptism. Okay, there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But when he says one baptism, the day that you got born again, you were baptized into the body of Christ. Now, many weeks, months, years later, you may have been water baptized, but that doesn't save you. That's just an outward sign of what has happened. So when he says one baptism, that's the day you got born again. What happened when you got born again? You died to that old life, and you rose up with that new life that's in Jesus Christ. You're a new creation. That's what he's talking about. And then he goes on to say there is only one God and Father of us all. And his name is Abba. Abba Father. And when you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have access to Abba Father. Now look at what he says in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ gave it. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What he's actually saying is that this God and Father of us all, he's a good God, isn't he? And what does God our Father want to do? He wants to give us gifts. Amen? Because the Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. We serve a wonderful God who wants to give gifts to us all. The greatest gift of all is God's grace. By grace are you saved through faith. Not only said it's what, it's a gift. But that's only the first gift. There are many, many more gifts. Now what does it mean when it says he ascended on high and he took many captives and he gave gifts to the people? What Paul is talking about here is what's called a Roman triumph. Now let me explain what's happening here in the natural, and we look at it in the spiritual. If you read Ephesians chapter 6, it talks about the armor of God, the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation. Where did Paul get that from? He got it from the soldier that was beside him. I'm going to write a sermon about you, Mr. Soldier, because I was chained to him. Paul is doing the very same here when he talks about God giving gifts to his church and putting those captives into captivity. Now, this is what happens at a Roman triumph. Can you imagine the, the Roman army are going into battle against the French? Back then, they were called, it was called Gaul or uh, the Celts. Celts and the Gauls are all the same thing. So the Roman army are leaving Rome, and they're going to France, or Gaul, to go to battle against the French. So all of Gaul, this did happen, by the way, history tells us, that all of Gaul, or France, has been captured by the Romans. So somebody has to run from probably Paris or somewhere, all the way to Rome, and tell the people in Rome the good news. What's the good news? The Roman army has conquered France. What happens then is all the soldiers, all the gold, and all the silver from France, or Gaul, 
is now brought to Rome. The Caesar in Rome goes to the Colosseum of the Roman Forum. He sits down on his throne, and right beside him is his son. And that's what's called a Roman triumph. And they bring all the gold and the silver and the slaves into Rome, and they take all the wealth, and they split it out among themselves. And the Roman Caesar takes off his crown, and he gives it to his son. And he says to his son, you are the new Caesar of Rome. And there's a wonderful celebration. Now, let me put that story into a spiritual context. 2,000 years ago, Jesus went to battle against the kingdom of darkness, against Satan. The battle didn't take place in France. It took place at Calvary. What happened at Calvary is Jesus won the victory over sin and death. So what is the good news? The good news today is that we are no longer captives to sin and death because Jesus has won the victory. When Jesus won the victory over sin and death, what happened then? Jesus went into paradise and he took all the people out of paradise like Moses and Abraham and David and he elevated them and brought them up into heaven. That's good. But what else did Jesus do when he rose from the dead? The Bible says in Colossians that he made a public spectacle of the devil. And he showed us that the devil is completely and utterly defeated. The spoils of war that Satan had has now been taken from him. Do you know Satan has no power over you except what you let him? Because at the cross, the power of sin and death was broken. So if Satan has power over you today, it's because you've allowed him in. The cross has won the victory. But what happened then? What happened to Jesus? Jesus ascended up into heaven... He sat down at the right hand of the Father, and God the Father said to his Son, Jesus Christ is Lord. You are King of kings, and you are Lord of lords. That's a coronation. What did Jesus do then? On the day of Pentecost, Jesus opened the treasure house of heaven, and he poured gifts into the church into the body, which is you and me today. Do you see what's happening? That's what's called a spiritual triumph, not a Roman triumph. And that means that we have complete victory because of Jesus. And then he goes on to tell us what these gifts are. I'm running out of time, but he says this. He's given the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And those are gifts that God has given the church. Why? That the church can form and function as a body. Very, very quickly. I'll go through them very quick. What is an apostle? <clears throat> an apostle is somebody who has a vision to plant a new church or a new cell group or to move out of the body and to do some outreach. And an apostle always builds 
on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. If you're not going to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ, that's religion. Do you know when you look at the fivefold ministry of the Holy Spirit, the most neglected one is what? The apostle. Do you know why? I'll tell you why. Because Satan does not want new churches. And a lot of churches today have closed down the apostolic ministry because we don't want that. And a lot of churches don't believe in the apostolic ministry, but God give us that gift. The next gift he gave was a prophet. What is a prophet? A prophet is somebody who knows what God is speaking to the church. And a a prophetic message generally comes true during time of praise and worship. And during the time of praise and worship, that is when the prophetic is opened and when God speaks to his church. Do you know the first prophet in the Bible was who? You'd never guess. Adam. Adam was the first prophet in the Bible. And his job was to name all the animals in the Garden of Eden. Wasn't that a cool job to have? And he looked at this big, enormous, fat animal, and he went, that's a hippopotamus. See that animal with a big, long neck? That's a a giraffe. See that animal running up and down the tree, stealing the bananas? That's a little monkey. See that black and white little creature over there? That's a panda bear. Or a Frisian cow, depends on what way you look at it. <clears throat> he was given the job to name all these creatures. The first person in the Bible to be called a prophet was actually Abraham. And you know what the prophetic word over Abraham is? Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We need that prophetic message today. Apostles, prophets, evangelists. I hope that in this church there are evangelists. What is an evangelist? You should be one. An evangelist is somebody who has a heart for the lost. People out there who are going to hell. You should have a heart, and in every church there should be people with a burning heart for those people out there who've never heard the gospel or heard the gospel but don't understand it. You need to go out there as an evangelist and tell those people. The difference between a prophet and an evangelist is this. A prophetic message can change every week. But the message of an evangelist never changes. I preach Christ and him crucified. If you don't know Jesus, you're lost, you're going to hell. The way to go to heaven is to come to the cross by grace, through the blood of Jesus, repent from your sin, your name is in the Lamb's book of life, you're saved. That doesn't change. The... the, The evangelistic message has never changed over the years. And we need evangelists today. So God has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors. Your pastor, Neil and Ben, do you know they're God's gift to this church? God has given them. That's a gift. Why? To help grow the church to to develop the church, to bring unity, stability to the church. A pastor is basically a shepherd. And the idea of a pastor is that you go forward as a pastor and behind you come the sheep. They follow you. Okay? That's the system behind a pastor. We are not cows. If you've got cows, you stand behind them with a stick. Go on there, go on, get on there, open it. You hunt them. 
were not cows, were sheep. Stupid sheep, but nevertheless. That's where the word pastor comes from. He has to have a heart for the people and a teacher. A teacher is somebody who takes you into the word at a level and explains something that you've never known before. A definition of a good teacher is when you leave the church and say, I never knew that. I read that before, but I never seen that. I never knew that. That's because you've learned something. So what God has done with this church, the body, he's given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why? Let me end my sermon by reading the last two verses. Well, Ephesians 4, verse 12. To equip the body, the people, for the work of the ministry, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God, of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of God. Wow, isn't that amazing? So as I hand over to the worship team, if they want to come up and lead us in a worship song, I just want to say, isn't it blessed that we are in a body? Isn't it amazing that God has taken you and me and that person and by his grace and his love has brought us into the body of Christ? But now that you're in this body, or whatever body you belong to, be excited about it. Just look at those people around you and say, wow, look at what God is doing. Love that person. Be humble, be gentle, be patient. And thank God for your pastor and the people around you. They are gifts that God has given so that you and me can mature so that we'll all reach the full measure of what God has given us. I'm excited. I could go on for another hour, but I won't. I'll, I'll sit down now.